Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the digital campus of Newark United Pentecostal Church and our Friday Night with Friends. We are so excited to have you with us, and our host is with us, Arash Ahmedpour, reporting to you from the bunker. There he is. He's from the bunker. <laughs> Meg has banished him to the bunker. The bunker. No one knows where I am. This is where I hide from my children. There you go. When you have little ones, you got to be able to hide. That's right. That's exactly right. Before we get any further along, welcome to all of our guests. If this is your first time with us, we welcome you. We're excited that you're here. And to all of you, let's remind you again, particularly our guests, anything you want to know about us, go to our website, newarkupc.info. There you can find out about our small groups. You can find out information about our broadcasts. And uh, this week also, we're wanting to remind you over the next several weeks, in fact, that we're doing a food drive for Thanksgiving. And so if you want to help us with that, go there and there's a little purple button in the bottom corner and you click on that button and you can give ties, offerings and missions are there, but you'll see a fourth button also the Thanksgiving food drive. And so you can help us out with that, with a donation there, if you'd like to partner with us in that. So um, Joyce is on standby in the background to handle questions when we get to that portion. So Arash, who's our guest tonight? Uh, who is our guest tonight? That is. An what do you mean? I never even found out who our guest was tonight. You did, don't. You don't. You know who our guest is? You know, we 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 uh, we have quite a few guests. Um, oh no, Joyce! Rush forgot to tell anybody who the guest was. Would you please call the emergency line? I don't know who the guest is. Rush, this is horrible. What are we gonna do with this? I I, I don't know. Um, uh, so we had to go and go to get our uh, fifth string quarterback, uh, our um, our Plan Z. Uh, somebody that uh, is all the way at the bottom of the list that we use, um, and uh, that person is <laughs> is uh, is you, is you, Steve. Is me? Yeah, yeah, you're our Plan Z. So. <laughs> oh my goodness, you've got to be kidding me! I'm the friend tonight. You are the friend tonight. I hope that's okay. Oh well, I guess I feel good about the fact that I'm considered a friend, but I, I'm not sure about it. So, what are we doing tonight? Well, today is Friday the 13th. Um, but what does that mean? <laughs> Friday the 13th on 2020 is not a good thing. It, it, I know it's not a good thing. And of course, my favorite holiday, Halloween, just passed. And I felt it would be very appropriate that we do something spooky. And we decided to interview you, Stephen. And so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I don't know where this is going, but all right. Let's. Let's let's go forward then. So what are we doing, Arash? All right. Well, we thought it'd be appropriate um, since we have a lot of new viewers and um, new saints coming to our church, kind of get a, a clear idea about Newark's history. Um, just kind of talk those backstories that, you know, we all kind of know because we've been, we've been around a long time, but kind of want to archive it and, and um, you know, let everybody know, what, you know, what is the history of Newark UPC? And um, we have a list of questions. All right. That I came up I, with. I have not seen these list of questions. No, folks. he has so, not. Uh, we will. And by the way, I did tell a fib. I did know who the who the guest was. We were we decided to be a little sticky, a little corny there, and act like we had made a mistake and so forth. I noticed Joyce didn't come to our help at all. She yeah. Did you notice that she didn't turn our camera on? In the background, didn't call the cavalry or anything. Thanks, Joyce. Antoine wouldn't have done that. Anyway, um, they all okay. So this is this is a very important question. All right. So the church originally started in a Weight Watchers building. Yes, it did. D 
Did your mom and dad ever join Weight Watchers? <laughs> okay. All right. So let's give the backstory on this. So basically the church began our first official Sunday service. Many of you have heard us say this, the first Sunday in December of the year 1978. I was born November 16th, 1972. So I, I wasn't was, born yet. Go ahead. I, I was just six years of age when it started. Previous to that, my mom and dad had moved to Delaware uh, earlier to help start a Bible college in Dover. And then they had also moved to Newark earlier than December of 1978 and had started with Bible studies, some in their home. And we also met in the Grange Hall, which by the way, still exists. If you drive up Limestone Road and you pass, there's a medical uh, facility and then there's a large Presbyterian church has a nice sign. In fact, we got our sign for idea from them right past there is this little dinky, dingy, dumpy looking little building that's the Grange Hall. I used to think it was massive when we would go there. We had banquets and stuff there too. That's where we had Tuesday night Bible studies. Um, but anyway, December of 1978, we start with our first Sunday service and that was in the Weight Watchers. So the short answer is no, mom and dad never joined Weight Watchers. Why would they have to? We had a joke that when you came to church, you would come in and the way Weight Watchers was set up, and by the way, the storefront is still there. For a while, it was Lieberman's bookstore. It's basically, folks, if you ever want to find it, I think it's a coffee shop now, which would be very appropriate for a rush. It it's be. basically right before you get to the last crosswalk when you're entering the university proper going down Main Street. There's a set of shops on either side, and then you hit this crosswalk, and on either side is the university. It's those set of shops right before there. The first building there, it's past the M&T Bank, and on the right-hand side was where Weight Watchers was. Across the street was an old movie theater. They've since tore that down and rebuilt. And so we would, people come out of the movie theater and sometimes come over and look in these big plate glass windows into the Weight Watchers, see what we were doing. But the way it was set up is you would walk in and it was basically cut into thirds. So the front third was just this open space. And mom and another lady actually taught Sunday school. Mom taught me. I was six. And this lady taught her daughter. That was the start of our Sunday school, what is now our KBN. Then between that was this boxed in area of rooms, two of them, if I remember correctly, two of them that had scales. And that's where you, the Weight Watchers, they would weigh in. And then there was the room behind that. So there was space. You'd go around these rooms and you would go into this space. And that's where the chairs were set up. The organ was set up. And behind the pulpit at the very back of the building was the bathroom. So in this building, if you had to use the bathroom during church, it was not a cool thing because you literally had to go between the organ and the pulpit, which, by the way, our original pulpit was a table with a box. And I said that right. A cardboard box with contact paper that looked like wood on it. That was the first pulpit. So you go between the pulpit and the organ through a door and then you would use the bathroom. But the only thing between you and the entire congregation was a single wall. So oh. you better hope you don't have a whole lot of noise. That's right. And you definitely were heard when you were finished and you flushed the toilet. So people did not go to the bathroom nearly as often then as they do in our church now. <laughs> Little kids, adults, everybody avoided it. So we had a joke. The reason I said that mom and dad did not join Weight Watchers, we used to say, you can come to church, and on your way to church, you can weigh in. 
because the scales were there. They didn't move the scales. And so that we, we were there for, if I remember correctly, I believe it was nine months. So we started in December. We were there for nine months. Uh, two Jewish gentlemen, I believe they were both Jewish. I know one of them was, rented it to us. And, you know, there's, there's kind of a, a moniker out there, Brother Owen, that, that, you know, Jewish people are good with money and might even swindle you, etc. These people were good to us. They rented to us on the cheap. They were nice to us. And then what happened is I believe they sold the building. And that precipitated us then moving for a year further out, if you continue down Main Street and go up 896, uh, the north part of 896, uh, on the left-hand side, right across from the, the north campus, there is a what used to be a historically black school. It turned into a community center called the George Wilson Community Center. And uh, in fact, I'm trying to think who was in town or what I did. I took, I took some of us over there. And actually, they, it was open, and I walked us through there. And we had church there for a year. And wow. so we went from the Weight Watchers to the George Wilson Community Center. That is where yours truly figured out that he could throw a rock really far. And so I'm chucking rocks, and I was dumb. And so I chucked one towards the building, and it got good wind on it, and it went up. And there's basically a arced window with little panes and I broke one of those panes with the rock I had to pay for that out of my out of my I don't know what I paid for it out of my birthday money I must have or that but yeah I can take you I chucked the rock through that that's one time we were having an Easter service there we had gotten locked out so we went ahead and had a sunrise service out in the parking lot and this we used to have to haul the organ in in out every single time so there's an organ on a truck and we're out there and the cop pulls up, says, what are you doing? So anyway, we informed him we were having Easter Sunday service. We'd gotten locked out of the George Wilson Community Center. And another time we came in there and they had had, I don't know what they were doing, but they had powdered paint. Don't ask me what they were doing, but they had powdered paint and it was all over the place. You all oh, mopping that floor took hours. We were, it was crazy. And we had church just in a few hours and we're mopping, trying to get this powdered paint up. When we first started there, Wednesday night, there was a pottery class right next to us. They didn't last. They changed nights. <laughs> the first night dad tried to behave himself and then he said, let it go. And so he started preaching and doing what was regular. They moved nights. They decided that pottery class didn't work next to the Pentecostal church. So we were there for a year, and then it was from George Wilson that we ended up on our uh, on our property. We ended up purchasing the property that we're at. So, yeah, we were Grange Hall. If you ever want to go look that up, we met in the Grange Hall. We've had, in fact, I'll probably tell some stories tonight about banquets we've had in there and things like that. Grange Hall, then the then the uh, Weight Watchers, and then the George Wilson Community Center, and that took us to. Um, basically 1980 early part of 1980 and that's when we purchased the property that we're currently at wow how cool the church just kind of moving from one thing to another um i have another question for you okay um what does a geodesic dome john f kennedy and friday the 13th all have to do with each other about our current structure Okay, I have no idea about the Friday part. I'm assuming the 13th is Apollo 13. I don't know. John F. Kennedy has to do with going to the moon. <laughs> and a geodesic dome 
the actual and here forgive me dad i know you're probably watching and i'm going to butcher this you could do a better job in this so folks if you really want the lowdown talk to my dad about this talk to james beardsley about this and he'll well, he'll probably tell you more than you want to know. But anyway, he can tell you a lot about it. But the I, the concept of a geodesic dome, which we have a really cool structure that right before we purchased that building, they had perfected and moved into a um, symmetrical structure, which is that wagon wheel structure. So when you look up at our at our dome, it's it's in a wagon wheel structure. Before that, it was actually put together by a lot of different uh, sizes and shapes, triangles. And it was very abstract. In some ways, it was, if you like abstract, it was more beautiful than even ours is because you had small triangles and large triangles and it was all pieced together. The invention of that, my understanding is, occurred either from the moon or for the moon. In other words, our space travel, um, the invention of the geodesic dome came from that. And we now use them in a lot of different applications. They are used in certain things with, with regard to the moon uh, and, and when we go there, but also you'll see them a lot of times if people are building structures on the earth where they're trying to be green in that. There's something about, and this again, I can't tell you the full science behind it, but that geodesic dome is extremely efficient and it's efficient in both seasons, both when it's cool because the cold air drops and the heat has space to go to, which allows the, the floor to be cooler. So you can cool the building down a lot quicker, but then also it works well uh, in the sense of, of heating it up as well. And that's the part I can never figure out how that quite makes sense, but it still does. I can go in and turn our heaters on and heat that building up. And then it maintains that heat for hours. Like it's efficiency factors really well. So, I don't know how my dad, I remember taking a trip with him. We visited several sites. One was in Michigan, in fact, speaking of Arash, where you're from, um, that we went and we visited the geodesic domes. Um, they're now called, I think, United Church Structures. And uh, several more have been built. We were the first geodesic dome ever built in Delaware. They didn't know how to classify us because we're, we're both a frame and some other one. And it's, it's this mixed structure and they didn't know what to do with it. Um, but I think my dad's affinity for the building and its uniqueness was the fact of this science background. He knew that this basic structure had been, had been invented in, in, in space and for space. And of course, for those of you that don't know, my dad was a rocket scientist before he came east to start a church, he built rockets. So he was in that, he was in that field. Uh, others were not always as kind. Those of you that know brother Libby, God love him. Uh, pastor down the road of a very large church in now um, Imesville, Maryland, originally was in Gaithersburg. He came one time for a district event, and I think it was in, in the wintertime, and he looked at it, and he looked at my dad, and he said, why'd you build an igloo? <laughs> so, anyway, we've had, we've had abuse about the building. You won't miss it. It's a unique building. You can always tell people, look for the dome. And the structure of it, I will tell you one other thing that's very interesting about it is all the weight of the roof, of course, as you all know, it's, it, it translates down, okay, it travels down all those beams, and then it hits the 12 foot high walls. And those walls are held together like a barrel. It used to be, before they redesigned it, it was literally a single cable, just like a barrel that went all the way around and held those walls together. So the pressure comes down, tries to push the walls out. 
and the cable holds them in. And then that translates it down into the foundation. We actually, they're bracketed together now. So it's not a single cable, but they're actually, there's, there's a steel bracket that goes around that holds the walls in. But yeah, my dad built a very unique building there and, and we've had to deal with it because one of the things as modern as we want to be, we're stuck with a whole lot of wood. And so part of the challenges we have as we continue to stay current and allow things to be to aesthetically move is that you still have to embrace that there's a lot of wood in that building and always will be. And I think it's a beautiful thing, but you just have to get creative in how you would, how you address it. And it represents a lot of hard work on some of our elders parts that they, because all that wood, bad news, it was supposed to come pre-stained all those beams and they stripped the paper off and found out that it had not gotten stained. So Ooh. now they're up on scissors lifts and ladders on top of scissors lifts. Oof, that sounds smart. No, it was not smart. That was <laughs> one of my father's less intelligent moves. Yes. Getting up to the cupola because the cupola is 33 feet uh, high. That's, that's how far up it is. And so they had to restain all those beams, those beautiful beams. And, uh, and in fact, at the hub, and this is the last thing I'll say and get off of the construction at the hub, you don't see it, but those are actually metal brackets that are empty. And Brother Herman Klein crafted, along with a lot of woodwork they did, he crafted inserts that go into those metal, into those metal hubs and allow them to look like they're closed off. Um, there's electric in there if we ever wanted to put lights in, but I've always felt, and really dad did too, that anything hanging down was going to mess the aesthetic of that dome up, the beauty of it. So we've always done the accent lighting and so forth. But yeah, it comes from, it comes from, I don't know, the Friday the 13th. Was I right on the 13th part? Were you going for the Apollo the 13th? Apollo 13, yeah. Okay, that's what I thought you were doing. The Friday part, I'm like, I have no idea. The <laughs> but yeah, Kennedy and the moon. That's, that's, that's part of the story of why what, we have a geodesic dome. What's also cool about geodesic dome is that actually it's the only man-made structure that gets stronger as it increases in size. So literally, our church is a fortress. And um, that's interesting. Which, uh, like Jesus, he's our fortress. So yeah, I, and we do not have the biggest. They actually, at the time when we built, ours is an 80-foot dome. So across is 80 feet. They actually had one that was 120. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was 120. They also had low profile and high profile. I really wish dad had gone with high profile. He said it looked funkier, but I wish he had because it would have given us more flexibility to build in the spokes. We could have done two stories, but we didn't know that at the time. And the low profile did look better. So ours is a lower profile and they have one that actually goes up higher. And then that allows the spokes to come in as two stories. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And the walls, if you ever go in the church, one of the things, see if you can identify the A's and the B's. There's two different types of walls. And the A's are the bigger sections of the walls. And then the B's are the smaller sections. The A sections are structural. You cannot pop them out. They have to stay fully there. They're load bearing. But the B sections, that's where all the doors are. I'll give you a hint. You can pop B's out. So what it is, is it's A's and then two B's and then an A and then two B's. Those two B sections are where you can put, sec you can put extensions on. So you're actually meant to have five spokes go out from kind of like a Pentagon. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. My next question to you is, um, tell us about prune feet. Oh, you're going to go there. All right. Now, I got to tell everybody up front, 
whenever Sister Diane Selby sees this, Sister Diane, please forgive me if I in any way offend you, but I'm going to tell our story. And the reason that I want to tell you this story is that this story is a part of the process of a people moving beyond history into making history. Okay, I'm going to be very serious for just a moment on that. It's moving beyond history to make history. So I'm going to back up a little bit. Some of you know this. Obviously, you know that you attend a diverse church. Newark United Pentecostal Church, it's obvious. You walk in the door, it smacks you in the face. If you don't like people from different nations and different languages and different cultures, or at least you're not willing to let Jesus save you from not liking them, you're probably going to need to find another church. And it doesn't take much for us to do that. We don't have to proclaim that. It's obvious. It's obvious in who we are as a people. That was not always the case. That was not always the case. My mother and my father both came from backgrounds in which rejection was a part of their church experience. And so when they came to Newark, Delaware, they were very desirous to create a safe place for anyone. In fact, they prayed the prayer. I hope you're not all offended by this, but they prayed the prayer, Lord, send us all the people that nobody else wants. So I have, with a smirk and a smile, looked at us and said, we are David's misfits. We are all the folks that other folks go, you know what, isn't there someplace else you can go? (laughs) And maybe we've left a little bit of that behind in the sense that it's kind of cool to come to our church now, but there is still at our core this radical commitment to embracing all. No matter how hard that is, no matter how uncomfortable that is, we want all. We want all to be safe. So mom and dad had that because of their hurts. Well, if you move to Newark, Delaware, you move to Newcastle County, Delaware, it's not, it doesn't take very long to figure out, hey, wait a minute, Delaware is a state that has a whole lot to do with African-American and white tension. Okay, city of Wilmington, race riots, um, all kinds of things, injustice that existed. Uh, My wife could tell you about the story of how Delaware is a conflicted thing as far as being a slave state and yet in the north, etc. So it goes it goes very deep. We're, We're just an hour south of Philadelphia, where our forefathers, you know, established this great nation, but did it while leaving some stuff in place that should not have been left in place. So there's all of this history and all of this. And so mom and dad began to reach people. And one of the first people they reached was actually an African-American. And uh, they reached this family. And then some issues within their family life came up. And dad began to pastor them. And the man didn't want to deal with them, just straight up didn't want to deal with them. And instead of being honest about that, he turned to a race card. And he called my dad a racist and, and he walked out. And so my parents began, you've heard this, many of you've heard my dad even say this before. He, he, he thought, I want to reach everyone, but I'm not sure everyone is willing to listen to me. Now, looking back, the good news is, is that it wasn't very long because that was actually, if I remember correctly, that was in the George Wilson Community Center. So that was in the first year and a half. We weren't even on our property. Well, By 1985, that began to change because slightly before that, 84, probably 
two ladies came to church while we were still in the house. So it was probably even earlier in 84. It's probably more like 83. The, the house, can you yes. explain? That house that everybody looks at, that ramshackle thing that needs to come down, that thing that is basically a, um, a stake for ivy to grow on. Yes, the house. You don't want to go in there. Wild animals live in there now. We have to clear it down. <laughs> Some people receive the Holy Ghost in that place, okay? That was a holy place, but unfortunately, it's not going to stand. It's going to have to come down. In fact, I'm really just letting the ivy do its job and maybe make it easier for us to tear it down. So two different occasions. Early on, we were having Bible studies in our house. There was a couple that used to come to church, uh, come to those Bible studies. They had just come to the Lord in the Apostolic Church over in Elkton. And uh, in fact, if they hadn't come there, they said years, years later, they said, Brother Bridgley, we would have been a part of your church, but we'd already come to that church. And so through them, we had contact with a beautiful little lady who uh, right now is probably giggling because she knows where I'm going and I'm about to tell part of her story, which was Elizabeth. Her name at that time was Hudson. And uh, it's now we know her as Elizabeth Raisin. And she and her husband, Wayne, have been a part of Newark for a very long time. I won't tell you how old Elizabeth is, but I promise you she's older than you think she is. <laughs> a long time. She's going to be mad at me later about That's that. Great. But anyway. So Elizabeth came to church through because of her brother-in-law saying, hey, this is a great church. And when she came, I'll never forget my dad telling this story that she came to him and she said, Brother Beardsley, I would like to come back. And it nearly broke his heart because she was really in some senses asking, am I allowed to come back? Am I allowed to come back? And she didn't know the story that I just told. She didn't know the rejection that had occurred as, as my dad ministered to the first African-American family that we had ministered to. And my dad and my mom thinking, we're never going to be able to be heard by them. We want to, but we'll never be able to be heard by, quote, them. Because the hurt and the pain. And here she found a church that somehow our spirit, our attitude was safe enough that she, she wanted to come back. But she wasn't sure if she was welcome. Wow. So that's, that's person number one. And of course, my dad nearly fell over himself saying, oh, absolutely, you're welcome to come back. And so Sister Elizabeth began to come. Now, somewhere in there, and forgive me for not having the exact years, and I hate to throw dad under the bus, but I doubt he even remembers the exact years either. <laughs> um, somewhere like 83, somewhere in there, on a, Sister Diane Selby might know the exact year. On a New Year's Eve, she and her sister were out I don't know what they were doing. I don't know if they were looking for a church. I don't know what it was, but they ended up walking into that house on New Year's Eve in a foot washing service. All right. So first of all, you're coming on a property, you're walking into a house, and then you're walking into a foot washing service of a Pentecostal church. I mean, how much more weird can it get? Not much. I mean, that's pretty off the wall. It's pretty weird. So my, my parents are like, you know... Okay, so she comes and 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 through then she decides to come back. And so Sister Elizabeth is the one who connected us with Sister Beverly Griffin and Sister Beverly Griffin and her home Bible study for about five years in her home where we saw probably three to four hundred people pass through that Bible study is wow. how we broke in in 1985. We broke into the African-American community in Wilmington, Delaware. Okay, there's a whole story there. Sister Diane Selby 
became a prime mover in reaching into another very important and scores and scores of people came to the Lord through her witness and others witnesses due to her witness in the GM plant, the boxwood plant uh, up where you used to work right across from where you used to work up at Price's Corner, Rush, in that boxwood plant. We live and, down the street now. <laughs> absolutely. And so many times they were going to shut that boxwood plant down. Do you know they did on a side note, the day our last person retired from there, the plant then got shut down. Whoa. The Lord preserved that plant until the last one of the people that she had reached. So these two ladies became pivotal in the story of, uh, of, of us diversifying. And the first step of us being a diverse congregation was breaking down the black white barrier. It was breaking down those hurts and those pains. And the reason I told the story of my dad is it went both ways. And it's appropriate that in the season that we're in right now, and yes, I am well aware of the season we're in right now. I'm well aware of the political, political scenario, all of that. Step away from your opinions about politics and understand that when there is injustice, there's pain on all sides. And that pain and that fear of rejection and that lack of safety was both present. And so Sister Elizabeth Hudson then Raisin Sister Diane Selby, they are heroes of mine because I get to pastor a church that's amazing because those two ladies took a risk and because my parents were willing to take a risk to lay down fears and hurts and barriers and overcome them. Now, let's get to prune feet because here's the deal. At 1985, I'm 12 years of age. Now, how smart is a 12-year-old? Okay. They think they're smart, but they're really not. Okay. I can tell you by experience, they're not. This is the kid that earlier, you know, have heard the story where I, we have a bake sale. And so I go in, I want a cookie. I don't have any money though. We don't have hardly any money. And so I want a cookie. And so I asked for a cookie and sister Jan Tompkins, who's now deceased and passed away said, well, you have to pay for them. And I said, well, if you people would pay your tithes, I'd have some money to buy a cookie. <laughs> well, Oh, my, my parents were quite mortified by that statement. And Sister Jan gave me the what for. She said, if your father heard you talking like that, you'd get a whooping. And I, and I, I might have got a whooping. I don't know. I don't remember. And for she sure. paid her ties, by the way. So oh, she did. She did. Pay her <laughs> she had no problem giving me the what for about, about that attitude. So you got to understand that's, that's the context of this. So I'm kind of innocent. I don't know all the history. I don't know all the sensitivity. So please understand, uh, if ever I have offended you, my parents lost many a night's sleep wondering when Steve's mouth was going to open up and blow up what they were trying to build in Newark. <laughs> Steve off the chain is not something that happened when he became an adult. I have oh. been off the chain. <laughs> so here's the story of prune feet. So Sister Diane Selby and I and a bunch of young people, I don't even remember when. I know I was a teenager. My memory is I was a little older teenager, but still, I was probably 15, 16, something like this. Still not very smart. Thought I was, but I wasn't. Not very smart. So we're having a car wash, all right? Well, what do you do when you're young people and you're having a car wash? Well, when you wash cars, right? But then you get wet somehow. And, and, and if you don't have a car, what do you start doing? You start fooling around. So by the time the day was done, 
everybody was soaked. Just soaked. Our shoes are soaked. Our shirts are soaked. Our, everything. In fact, in a car wash, we always told everybody, don't wear white shirts because you're just not going to be modest. You know, wear dark because you're going to get soaked. So we all go into that house that's falling down and we're sitting there. I don't know if we had some drinks and some things, you know, some snacks and things like that, that we were sharing together. And so we're sitting there and we're, we're our feet are sopping wet. I mean, you can hear a squish, squish, squish as you're walking. You know, any of you have ever done a car wash, you know what I'm talking about. Just totally soaked. So we all go in, we sit down, we're taking our shoes off. I'm sitting on the floor. Sister Diane Selby was sitting in a chair. So we're taking our shoes off. She takes her shoes off. Now, here's the part. That's why I gave you all the background, because if you take this out of context, my goodness, you're going to burn me in effigy. So I look over at her feet, which are darker than mine. And what happens when your feet are wet? They crinkle up, right? So I look over and I go, your toes look like prunes. Oh, my Lord. I can't even, I don't even know if my dad was in the room when I said it, but if he had, he would have had a heart attack. He would just, Ooh! <laughs> I'm like, I'm not even thinking about it. You know, I don't mean anything by it. I'm just looking, I'm like, there's prunes. So Sister Diane Selby was just classy. She just flat out, she knew I was goofy and, and all of this kind of stuff. She didn't take offense. And she just said, well, so do yours look like prunes. And from there for a number of years, and I probably it fell away as I became pastor because she couldn't bring herself to do it. For years, whenever we would come into church and greet one another, and we began to take great delight in it because nobody knew what it meant. And if they do it, if they did, it freaked them out. We would greet one another as prune feet. So here it is, white boy walking into church, speaking to an African-American elder lady, and I call her prune feet. And she would laugh, look back at me and say, how are you prune feet? Wow. Now, the reason that story, first of all, it shows how incredibly stupid your pastor can be at times. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Go ahead. Okay. All right. So, <laughs> folks. Just be kind to me, because I've always had I've always had these moments that I just I just go there. Uh, you know, Arash has even been here long enough that you know there's like a rumble that goes through you. I know. Oh no, he's gonna go there. No, 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 no. He just opened his mouth. <laughs> <sighs> but what I also want you to understand is there was an atmosphere being created in Christ. Mm in which people were safe. Because I can tell you, there's no way that we could have done what we did and build the relationships that we did. And to this day, there are times Sister Diane Selby will come up and she will she will ask, it, it's humbling, because you understand, I was a kid when she came to the Lord, when she came to our church. But she'll come and ask to pray for her pastor. Oh, that's sweet. But the relationship goes all the way back to a teenager who was dumb enough to just after a car wash, look over and go, your toes look like prunes. <laughs> and a lady that was classy enough, kind enough, patient enough to turn around and look at me and just give it back to me. And then out of that came a relationship that to this day is strong. 
it's those kinds of things where we lay down our pain. Yes. And through Christ who tears down the wall of partition, whatever that partition happens to be, because then as you all know, we begin to tear down the wall of partition that we're not an American church. Yes, we exist in America, but we are not an American church. And Veterans Day just passed, and folks, I honor our veterans. I honor the freedom that they have provided. But please understand, that's why I took the flags down. We are not an American church. We are a church in which all, no matter what your nation of origin is, no matter what your language, your first language is, we are a church that is defined by Jesus Christ. And he hath made of one blood all the nations of the earth. All the nations. And there's real pain. We don't need to deny the history of that pain. We don't need to put it away. But we also need to realize that through Christ, there can be reconciliation. There can be justice. Yes, there can. And um, my political statement, if you all saw that when I when they called the vice presidential or called Vice President Biden as the president-elect, my statement comes out of that. You as my brother or my sister matter more than anything else. And nothing can displace that. Nothing. And, uh, but that's the story of prune feet. I haven't called her that in a long time. Probably the next time I see her, we'll have to resurrect it for a time or two, but that's the story of prune feet. Well, um, why don't we go ahead and have Joyce come on? Um, All I right. have questions, but I, I want to, I want to get some, uh, interaction here between the, um, our audience and, uh, our speaker here tonight. Joyce, are there any good questions out there? Any good stories that they want uh, Stephen to bring back about the past? Yes, we have a few. And Leela asked this one. She stole mine. So um, can you tell us about Gilberseth? Ah, okay. This was a little more spiritual, but at the same time, got a little humor. It's again, a little bit about me as a kid. So uh, my father began to feel that he was called to come to the East Coast and my mother as well. They both felt this. And uh, before my dad took a little boy, you got to understand my mom had gone through cancer. Uh, imagine my mom, 98 pounds. Um, and, and God had healed her miraculously. And then she lost my sister. She was stillborn. And, um, that happened literally months before we moved to Delaware. And so my dad was taking a little boy, four and a half years of age at that time and a sick wife and going to quit his job, a job where he was getting raises every six months and 10% bonuses at the end of each year. He was on a fast track. He was doing extremely well. The guy who took his job ended up being a VP with Hercules, uh, the same Hercules that the Hercules building in, in Wilmington was built for. That was their headquarters building. So my dad was on a fast track. He was secure. He was leaving all of that to go do what God had asked him to do. So he went away to our pastor in West Virginia's cabin. When you're in West Virginia, you have cabins, okay? Uh, I do not have a cabin. Thank you very much. I go to resorts, but no, I have cabins. <laughs> I love my West Virginia roots, but I still believe that God really didn't want my parents to start a church in the East. I think he looked down, saw this poor little boy in West Virginia and said, oh, I got to get that poor boy out of West Virginia. Motorcycles, guns, hunting. It just was not me. I'm That was not me. So he got me out of there. That's my joke. So anyway, my dad went to this cabin and he went on, a, I forget how many days, I think it was a week of fasting and prayer to just solidify and say, God, are you sure that you've called me? And so in the midst of that, he, he reaches the end, he's got confirmation, and he stays an extra day. And now I want to put a caveat here. We love to worship what we can see. 
So everybody hear me very clearly. Your faith is in God, who you cannot see, not in all of his instruments, whether it be preachers, whether it be fellow brothers or sisters, or whether it be angels who work for him. Okay? All right. I have to lecture you on that. I have to give you that piece because we love to fixate on all the stuff that we can see. All right. But with that said, my dad stayed an extra day. And before he left, God sent an angel to him and told him, because my dad's primary concern was for the safety and the care of his family. He's going to start a church. He and mom are going to start a church and they want safety for themselves, for their child. So God sent this angel. He was Middle Eastern. He was very tall. My dad did not have an exact height, but he was markedly uh, taller. My dad's six foot tall. He was markedly taller. So I would put him in the seven foot range, that kind of thing. He was very large. He wore a turban. So any of you that want to be anti-Muslim or anti-Middle Eastern, get over it. Now, God's got... Middle Eastern angels. So he's got a turban. He's dark skinned. Um, Arash will want to claim it was him, but it wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't alive. <laughs> <laughs> and and the angel didn't come in the form of Arash. Let's just no, be- it did not. No, no. <laughs> but he, was, he, he had uh, he was in a white white robe, and he had a large sword that was attached to his side. Now, remember, angels are spirit beings. So when they manifest themselves, they are taking on a form. They're manifesting themselves in a form. And that form is probably sending a message. Okay. I, we could read into it. We didn't know it at the time, but it wouldn't surprise me if we did not get the image of someone that was from a different part of the world because of what Newark is about, missions and other people, etc. The warrior aspect. And the Lord basically told my dad, this angel is, is going to be with you and will guard you. And my dad felt in the spirit that he would, that that angel was posted above our neighborhood. It was above our house. Now I wasn't clear on that. So here's the funny part. So I wasn't clear on that. So I'd heard my dad talk about Gilberseth. And I think my dad said he saw him one other time. I think he saw him in Newark one other time. But I used to do this goofy thing. This shows how goofy I am. That for a season, I would come to our house at 117 Aronimic Drive, where I grew up, and I would come to the door. And before I would go in, I would say, excuse me, Gilberseth, as if Gilberseth were posted to the door. And that I would need to go around him or ask for permission. <laughs> to come through. Just a goofy kid. That would have been probably before I was even 12 years old. Cause I don't, I don't remember doing it. I remember my parents telling me that I used to do that, but yeah, there was a guardian angel. I have never seen that guardian angel. I have a, I am resentful of God that he's never showed me that guardian angel, but I know that God has us. And I know that he does it by various means. And one of those means was an angel and my father and my mother Maybe they had less faith. I don't know. But God gave them this. God gave my dad this vision to confirm to him that he would be spiritually protected 
um, with this angel. And he was told his name and his name was Gilbert Seth. So odd name. Even my dad's not creative enough to come up with that. Name. <laughs> okay. I'm telling you. He's a rocket scientist, folks. He wouldn't have thought of that name. <laughs> would not have thought of Gilbert Seth. Gilbert Seth is the oddest kind of name. So I know. And I don't know where Gilbert Seth is now. I don't know if he's posted over Newark. I, again, because aerially, how far up do you go before the cone of protection? You know, I don't know where exactly. We don't have clarity on that. But there was there was an angel sent to Newark with my parents as they established the church. And I don't know if that he's if he's moved on to other things. I don't know if he won his wings like Clarence did. And, you know, it's a wonderful life. I, I don't know. I'm not belittling it. I'm just simply saying I do not know. But there was there was an angel tasked with protecting my father, my mother, and because I was with them myself as we established the church. So that's the story of Gilbert Seth. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So there's another one. Tell us some funny or scary stories that have happened during the history of the church. Ooh, funny or scary. Well, I've told a few funny ones already, but let me think if I can think of a couple other ones. Oh, here's a funny one from early on that a lot of you wouldn't know. So early on, um, church doesn't have any money doesn't have hardly any people, probably hardly anybody gave any money. You know, you're, you're dealing with brand new people. There's no church. You're, you're establishing it. So um, there was a lady, those of you that remember Sister D. Nideline, one of the um, four mothers of the church. My dad pastored for years a church that was nearly all women. In fact, the husbands of these women and others would make fun of him that he, he could only pastor women. Um, one of these was Dee Nideline. She had received the Holy Ghost and uh, was baptized. She was she was new, but she was known for her creamed mushrooms. And creamed mushrooms go really well with roast beef. So she she and Sister Jan Tompkins, another mother of the church, the two of them together, they they were some serious folks. They would cater uh, for they were go-to caterers for, at the time, Lieutenant Governor Wolf. Um, and um, so anyway, they decided they were going to have a fundraiser, a roast beef dinner. So he sold tickets for the roast beef dinner and, uh, and you know, all the labor was, was supplied, etc. And uh, I don't think this one was in the Grange Hall, actually. I think it was someplace else, but we had a snowstorm. Well, you had all this roast beef cooked. You had all this creamed mushrooms ready. You had all this food ready. And so my dad said, we're just going to go through with it. Well, there were so few people there and I might get the numbers wrong, but it was that my dad figured up the amount of roast beef that they had. Everybody there had the ability to eat something like three to five pounds of beef. <laughs> Let's just say it was not a successful fundraiser. Oh, no. <laughs> because it got snowed out. But my dad said it was an awesome time because everybody who came had a, I mean, you're, you're snowed in, but it was warm. You had great food and you sat around and just talked and ate and talked and ate. You never ran out of food. <laughs> and so they just had tons and tons and tons of roast beef. So that's one of the funny stories. Another funny story, I'll throw Sister Jan under the bus. God rest her soul. She's already in Jesus' hands. Um, 
she and others in the church would always have a battle. Our Christmas banquet would be in the Grange Hall for years. Sister Jan loved candles. She loved candlelight dinners. In fact, to this day, I hate candlelight dinners because of her. Hate them. I'm blind, people. I can't. I want to see my food. Bad <laughs> enough when there's lights on. Okay, but candlelight. I don't even know where the fork is. And so we would have this battle every single time between her, who wanted every light except for the candles out, and she had she had these sconces, these glass sconces. If you ever went to her house at Christmas time, she was a fire hazard. She had evergreens everywhere. <laughs> Everywhere. Oh my goodness. It was a fire hazard. God, if Kimmy or any of her kids get on to see this broadcast, it, your house was nerve wracking at Christmas time. Beautiful. Absolutely gorgeous, but nerve wracking. Okay. So we would have this battle because if I remember it, Granny D, the one I just told you the story about, actually wanted a little ambient light and then the candles. And Sister Jan, no, it's got to be all candles. And so my dad, this was what pastoring was, was brokering peace between these two ladies who had known each other longer than they'd known my father and had been doing things together and been fighting each other in those banquets for years, but trying to bring peace at a Christmas banquet. So that was, if you think pastoring is all about preaching and teaching, <laughs> I got bad news for you. That's the easy part. <laughs> the preaching and teaching, pastoring would be easy if there were no people involved. Yeah. yeah that's... <laughs> and I love you all. I love you dearly. But there are days that I wish all the people would just go away and then life would be peaceful. But that's not how it works, is it? <laughs> I don't know if that fills the billet, but that's that's a couple of <laughs> early stories that nobody would really know about that seem to have a humorous element to them. They're, they're kind of funny. Well, we have one from... Uh, brother Rick Carter. So he okay. said, tell about the time I almost ran you over in my first <laughs> car. <laughs> All right. This is a, this is a funny story. This, this is a funny story. And by the way, brother Rick Carter, if you ever want to hear great stories, Granny D and, and uh, uh, Sister Jan, both of them were like mothers to him. And so a lot of Rick's uh, catering abilities and all that he learned at the hands of these two ladies. So he can tell you lots and lots of stories of that. So brother Rick Carter is a great source for those stories. So Rick's a little bit older than me. I like to say he's a lot older than me, but he's, really, <laughs> he's just a little bit older than me. And uh, so Rick came to us. You've heard his story, his testimony many, many times. So he comes at 16. He gets a powder blue. If I remember correctly, Rick will probably comment if I'm wrong. Powder blue Pinto. This is his first Pinto. call. Pinto. You remember Pintos? Hatchback Pinto. Stick shift. Nobody taught him how to drive a stick shift. So, he, you know, he's figuring it out. How do you work the clutch and the, and, and, and the gas and the stick shift and, and this kind of thing? So my job at the church, we were now at the church property where my job as a young man, uh, I had several jobs. One is during the summers and, and spring and that dad would make me weed the irises. When we bought the property, the man who owned the property had all kinds of uh, exotic irises all over the place. Ladies and gentlemen, I am proud to tell you there's not a single iris left on that property because I exterminated them step by step, rip by rip, little bit of the lawnmower chewing up the bulbs by little bit of the lawnmower chewing up the bulbs because I would have to weed them. And if you've never weeded irises, two things happen. Number one, the weeds grow up in, in the 
in the in the leaves there and it's all wet in there and then the leaves decompose so literally as you weed irises you are pulling out slime so that was one of my jobs that's part of how i've even preached a sermon my ministry began in the irises and it did it did well another part of my job was that i would go and i would have to pick up the trash along the road which invariably had little whiskey bottles and beer cans and all this kind of stuff. And that's, by the way, you've ever heard me tell where drinking is not one of my temptations because I picked up one of those cans one time and just took a sniff, not a swig, no, just a sniff. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my goodness, who would drink this stuff? It stinks to the high heavens. Coffee smells good and tastes bad. Beer just smells bad. So for all of you that like to drink, God love you. I understand it's acquired taste, but something's wrong with your head. That stuff is nasty. So I'm up picking up beer cans. Rick Carter's driving down Salem Church Road in his blue hatchback Pinto stick shift. Well, what do drivers when you first drive? What's your problem? I just survived my first ride with Marcus this week. Oh, wow. Boy, hallelujah. Anyway, he did good. He did really well. He did much better than Caleb because he shut his mouth. Caleb always is yapping, so I couldn't take him anymore. And he did better than Vincent. Vincent drove on curbs with my smart car. Anyway, so think of that. They don't know how to accelerate and they don't know how to brake. So, you know, you're, you're fitting and now think stick shift. So here he comes. He's gotten up enough speed coming down Salem Church Road. Now he's got to turn into our parking lot. But he does, he's working the gear shift. He's working the clutch. He's working the brake. Well, let's just say that Rick Carter took that corner at a faster than suggested speed. And I happened to be standing right in that vicinity as he swung wide trying to get into, the par into, into our parking lot. I'm picking up beer cans. And so the joke has been between Rick and I that he nearly killed his pastor. <laughs> well, I, don't think beer was, cans. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it was quite that close, but at the time for him and I, it felt pretty close. It was, it was, it was a harrowing experience because he's barreling in he doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know how to work the clutch and the brake and, and the stick shift. He doesn't know how to downshift. So he's flying. He, anyway, it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty wild when Rick came rolling in. Well, I was told to ask about your famous C and E sermon. C oh, <laughs> all right. So as you all know, Christmas and Easter, those are the times that people who are only nominally Christian or, you know, just come for family, they come to church. Well, I had a whole passel of people. I, I was, I think I was pastor at this point. I was definitely associate pastor, but I think I was even pastor. I might have just been associate pastor because so what happens is is we had all these people and every Christmas and every Easter they'd show up and it's the same people every single time and the only time we would see them was Christmas and Easter so I was set to preach I believe it was Easter and so I preached a sermon in which I basically pinned their ears back and said if you think this is helping you it's not and if you don't want to get serious, you might as well just stay home on Christmas and Easter, too, because it doesn't matter. Wow, that's a pretty bold statement there. It was, well, I've always gone places that most do not go. 
It was not untruthful. I was not unkind, but I was in very typical fashion, very blunt. Well, it got a few families in an uproar. It did. A few of them got in a little bit of an uproar because their family was quite, oh, well, I'm not coming back again. And they needed to have their pins, their ears pinned a little bit. I might have should have been a little bit more wise about it. Here's the funny part that I don't know if the congregation even knows. So we come home from that. We get the feedback. And this is why I think I might have been just associate pastor. The next Easter, as we're approaching Easter, there begins to be a slight buzz. Who's preaching Easter? My dad smiled at me and said, oh, son, that was set last year. <laughs> Easter. And so, boom, that sounds just like in the pulpit, <laughs> the next Easter, because those families that got real upset, dad was kind to him, but he said he didn't say anything that wasn't true. And then he said, no, no, you're preaching Easter. So I've learned from that. If you ever, if, if you've ever worked with me, there are times that I will own your faux pas. I will own your maybe lack of wisdom and so forth. But as a congregation, Newark has learned, no, you don't bully the pulpit. <laughs> and that was an example of dad just put me right back in the pulpit. And of course, I had to figure out what I was going to do. I did not preach another Christmas and Easter sermon. I didn't do that. I, I went a little bit, a little bit more moderate. <laughs> But that's the C and E. That was the C and E Christmas. That is funny. C and E sermon. Excuse me. It's interesting seeing that the same story about you asking if you paid your tithes, and he didn't say much because it was technically true. And here you are with your sermon. Seems to be a very common trait here with your dad. Oh, he said something <laughs> to me when I got home about the Did you pay your tithes? <laughs> oh no, no, no. On that one, I got a very much a correction. I don't know if I got a spanking, but it, I got an earful. I promise you. Sister Jan gave me an earful, and then he gave me an earful without question. Okay, so I'm going to combine two questions. Okay. Um, let me see. You mentioned spokes on the building. What spokes and Talk about the condition of the property when we bought it and your dad's bow saw. Oh, yes. Okay, so there's only one spoke on the building, which is basically that jut out, our entranceway, that is, our, that is part of our vestibule and our entryway. That's a spoke. So the way that you can tell this is if you go inside of our building in our vestibule, that part that comes together as kind of a triangle there used to have the phone there. That's the actual dome proper. And everything outside of that is actually an extension, a straight extension coming out of the building. That's what a spoke is. And so the reason there's a beam there where that phone is, is because those two sections are bees and you can pop them out, but you have to leave the beam there that's there. So that's, there's meant to be five of those in the original design of this building. And you would actually make them long enough so that you would put a hallway that connects them all on the outside of the dome, on the outside of the sanctuary. So that's what the spoke is. All right, so when we bought the property, everybody think in your mind, basically uh, where the house is, all right? Next to the house, okay, it's basically where you drive through right now. Next to the house was a shed, was not a shed, but a garage. Beyond the house and that shed was all woods. The entire rest of the property 
was overgrown. And I kid you not. Who cut the grass back then? My dad. So first, he would tear up so many lawnmowers because he would take an extra swath trying to clear the underbrush. Problem is, is you'd have stuff that had been thrown there. So then you'd hit rocks, you'd hit metal, you'd hit all kinds of stuff. So then you got to either replace the blade or you got to even fix the lawnmower. But that's that's the first thing. And then once even the underbrush was reached back, then you get into where there's these trees. And some of these trees, you know, were just this size, no big deal. But others were this size. And I kid you not, every one of those trees on that property, my dad cleared and I was there with him. We would We found it. There was a cylinder, there's a well that's capped off underneath of the metal building currently. That well had a cylinder that stuck up above the ground. And of course, when we capped it off, we didn't have it. That concrete cylinder we took to the back of the property and we put it up on bricks and we would create a fire so hot, it cracked it, it was reinforced. But we would create a fire so hot that we could burn green. So we would take tree limbs that were green and ran, it was really fun as a kid ram them down in and literally the fire would consume green wood. But my dad cut every one of those trees down with a bow saw. Wow. I have still to this day questioned my father's intelligence on that. Except for the moments where I find myself doing the exact same thing. I don't always get the right tool. Bless God, the job will get done. And those that work with me, you know this. I will find by hook or crook a way to get something done one way or the other. I try to buy better tools than my dad. I try to be smarter about it. But in the end, I have no patience for not getting the job done. So he cleared the property with bow saws. And some of them like this, that's not a big deal. If you any of you ever used a bow saw, you can cut down a tree that's this size with a bow saw, not a big deal. But this big? It starts to tilt, it binds. So I'm leaning on the tree while keeping creating enough space for him to keep cutting with a bow saw. Every tree on that property, because they didn't have any money, it had to be cleared. So he'd get out there and he'd clear those trees. Where the organ sits, well, it used to sit before it was on the platform, was a pig pen. Wow. I used to go out there and search for it in the underbrush. <laughs> All right, Joyce, we're going to go over a little bit tonight. What's, okay. What else we got? Well, how do we become international? Oh, that was me. So through the 80s and the 90s and into the first part of the 2000s, we continued on the path, teaching the Bible studies, reaching people, bumping up against each other culturally, but basically becoming a, a biracial church. Okay, a white and a black church. We had a we had a brother Tony uh, Zavala was we had probably him and maybe one other person that was Spanish, but it was mainly we were breaking down the divide between African American and and Caucasian, basically fighting the battle of America's conscience that, that goes back to the founding of our nation. The 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 thing that the forefathers knew they should have fixed and couldn't figure out how to do so while still coming together. It was wrong and we have paid egregiously for it. 
not only in the lives of the Civil War, but in all of the horrible things under Reconstruction, the Civil Rights Movement, and even to this day. We have paid, America's paid a heavy toll for the decision not to find a way through it. So we, we spent the 80s and 90s, 85 is when it started, 84, and through the 90s, into the 2000s. And by the time, we're, by the time I took the pastorate in 2005, it was, a, it was a no-brainer. All I had to do is just keep the ball rolling. It was a no-brainer. We were going to be uh, integrated completely, totally. And there were people from all sides committed to that vision. It was not just white people saying we want black people worshiping with us. It was not just black people saying we want to worship in a, in a multicultural church. It was all of us. We had caught a vision and we were committed to it. And if you weren't committed to it, you would leave. And unfortunately, there were times that people would come in and they'd only come a time or two and they'd leave. And it, sometimes they'd even tell us, I just can't do this. They were worried about interracial marriage, and we knew that was coming, and we had no problem with it. I, in fact, I put my finger on that in typical fashion in national forums. We were involved in ministries of the United Pentecostal Church that dealt with this. Uh, and I said, the real problem is, is we're, we, we got a problem with our children marrying each other, because if you actually spend time together, the lines go away. I said, that's the real problem. And if you'll let your kids marry, it'll cease to be a problem. And uh, I begged my kids, go marry brown people. White babies are pasty anyway. Go marry brown people. <laughs> now, for all of you white folks that want to get mad at me about that, deal with it, okay? It is who I am. Uh, we, need to, we need to erase these lines. He has made of one blood all the nations of the earth. Stop this foolishness. So that had been succeeded at. We were in that place. We were solidly in that place. And so I was at this conference in a different part of our nation that had not yet achieved it, very segregated, and they're struggling with it. And so I'm at this conference, and they're talking about how to reach into the African-American community and how to create integrated and diverse churches. And, and I'm sitting there, and frankly, Joyce, I was bored. I'm sitting there going, I mean, I don't want to be arrogant, but I already pastored a church that we've done this. What's next? And I'd done some demographic searches. I must not have done them very well, but I looked at it and I didn't see a whole lot. I knew that we needed to reach into the Spanish community. And that is a challenge because you also have a language issue there. So, you know, first language versus second language. But beyond that, I'm like, God, I don't know anything. And he just kind of spoke to me and he says, you have not because you ask not. So I said, okay. And so I started praying. That would have been in the summer. I started praying and I said, God, send me people from other nations. I don't know where you're going to find them, but send me people from other nations. And by the fall, Sister Sylvia can tell you, sorry, Sister Sylvia. I always trot her out. She gets mad at me. Not really. She just gets tired of me doing it. By fall, September, October, in walks this little, short, cute, beautiful Brazilian lady. At the same time, a young teenage girl from down the road from, and I'm forgetting, Sylvia, if you're on, type me where she was from. It was a nation that started with a Z, but from Africa. Zambia? It's not Zambia. It was another one. Zimbabwe? It might have been that one, but 
Sylvia will know. I can't remember for the life of me. And slowly but surely over the next several years, people from other nations of the world started walking in the door. And I haven't done it recently, but at one point, we our composition had shifted to 45% African-American and 45% Caucasian and 19%, 20%, um, excuse me, not 45, told that wrong, 40 and 40, 40% African-American, 40% Caucasian and 20% other nations of the world. And God has done that next phase of all not just breaking down the barrier of America's conscience of African-American and Caucasian and that deep divide there, that hurt. But now we are a place that the immigrant begins to feel welcome. And we don't know what we're doing. We didn't know what we were doing when we were breaking down all the other barriers, but we love and we're committed to the all. And it came from a prayer. It came from a kid, a young pastor saying, God, I don't even know how to do this. He said, you have not because you asked not. And I started asking. And I don't get to take any credit for it. He sent them. One by one. One by one. By the way, I think it was Togo. So they said there's no Z. Oh, it's no Z. There you go. See? All right. Is Sylvia on or somebody else was on? Uh -huh. Yeah. She's on. I knew she would remember. I, I knew. I thought it was a Z. Sorry, Sylvia. And I love you. Don't get mad at me for calling you a cute little short thing. I always tease her. <laughs> I don't know why it is. I pick on short people. I do have a short daughter and I pick on her too. I don't know. God forgive me if I'm being cruel. Well, another question is, um, what's your favorite sermon that you've given? Oh, that's not even fair. I've been preaching for 25, well, longer than 25 years. I've been preaching for 30 years, but... I will tell you this, the sermon series that I wish I had never preached, it was so much fun to preach, and I wish I had never preached it, was Chase the Lion. Dear Jesus, if I had known what absolute chaos was going to be unleashed on us because I preached that sermon series, I think me and Jesus would have had a long conversation. It was a blast to preach. I love the imagery. I love the story. I had fun preaching that sermon series, but oh my goodness, I did not know what was coming. Um, in recent time, probably one that I had that I had a blast preaching and has been very formative is uh, Jerusalem or Antioch, which church? That was a very powerful form that, that crystallized a lot of thoughts that I have over the years had surrounding some of the things that we've been talking about tonight, the formation of the church, the composition of the church, the character, the core value, how we value people, how missions plays into it, all of those kinds of things. Um, in a weird sort of way, I'm kind of proud of my CE sermon. It showed a fearlessness on my part, even if it lacked wisdom. Um, yeah, that's probably a good enough answer for that that question. Rush, what was what was two of the questions you didn't ask? Mine? Yeah. What did um, you ask? One was uh, tell us Doug's story. Oh, yes. 
that one I got to tell. All right, let's end on that note. Let me tell that. Let me let's end on that note because that's a good one. That's another all story. So about and here's what's ironic about the same time that we're working and making these breakthroughs within the African-American community. You may remember that that same period is when AIDS, uh, HIV was breaking upon the world and nobody knew about it. See, folks, this COVID that we're in the middle of, this is not my first rodeo with something dangerous. Okay? It's just not. And um, so HIV was breaking us. We did not know how it was transmitted. We didn't know if it was airborne. We didn't know any of these kinds of things. We knew much less for much longer than we have about COVID. We figured out COVID rather quickly, honestly. The fact that we now have a vaccine on the, on, the, on the docket coming up within the next few months, and we've in only six months we've solved it, that, that's an absolute testimony to what God said at the Tower of Babel. These people, when they put their minds together, can do anything. It's the creative genius of God that is within humanity. HIV, we didn't know that. And so a man who was in a, in a um, homosexual relationship, um, through his lover and their, and his family, one of our elders went in and prayed with him and shockers, God filled him with the Holy ghost. So everybody that wants to talk about homosexuality as something that's a spirit and, and, and it's demonic and all this, you're going to have to back up a little bit on that. You don't have Bible for that. And I have experience that says the opposite, because this man, till the day he died, had attraction to the same sex, because it had to do with his father, it had to do with his past, it had to do with a lot of other things. Brokenness is something Jesus knows how to conquer, period. I don't care what your brokenness is. Stop laying so much at the devil's feet. He's not as powerful as we all think he is. He's a dweeb. Yes, I just said that. He's a dweeb. Without Jesus, that dweeb can kick your butt. But with Jesus, he's a dweeb. Don't give him more credit than he deserves. So Doug receives the Holy Ghost, and he wants to get baptized. So this elder comes to my dad and, and asks him, will he come and baptize him? So my dad faces a decision. What are we going to do? How are we going to handle this? And in that scenario, he made a decision. He went, and he baptized him, baptized him in a whirlpool. Now, it was supposed to be sealed. My dad was in plastic. They were trying to do, take prophylactic measures, but... The door didn't work. My dad's jamming his knee into the door. Water's leaking out. It was, you did everything you could to be safe. He baptized him in Jesus' name. Well, Doug gets a little bit better. He gets out of the hospital and he wants to come to church. So my dad comes to the congregation. He says, brothers and sisters, we have a brother. He's filled with the Holy Ghost. He's baptized in Jesus' name. And he's coming to church. And he said, and we didn't have no HIPAA laws or none of that stuff. Okay. He simply says, but he has HIV. Now, remember, we're in the fellowship hall, so we're just in the metal building. Not a single person from that congregation left. And I, at an anniversary service, I think it was 20 or 25 years, I told Doug's story, and I said, by that point, we were in our new building. I said, everything we are now is due to the choice we made then. God was testing us. Doug was very careful. 
He would be very, very hygienically careful. Um, at 16, I know I was 16. So I was 12 at 85. So four years later, 1989, I was 16 years old. I went to the hospital with my dad on Sunday afternoon. As most of you know, you don't die of HIV, but rather what happens is, is, is the other systems break down other sicknesses or illnesses ultimately take you. When we went there, Doug couldn't even speak to us because his, his mouth had broken down. It was bloody. It was just bleeding. Like he opened his mouth to speak and it was just, it was a, it was just blood red, his whole mouth. He should have been in excruciating pain. And with hand signals, I remember sitting there, tears streaming down my cheeks. He signaled to us that he had no pain. Mm -hmm. God impressed upon my dad. We've been praying for his healing. We've been praying for God to miraculously touch him. We went to church and I've done this now since then. My dad says, I feel in the spirit that we are holding Doug and it's time to let him go. Yes. And so he told the church, he said, I want you to pray to let him go. One of the sisters, Sister Tracy Sheets, in fact, those of you that know Sister Tracy, <laughs> Tracy was always an innovator. She somehow, I don't know how, because she didn't have chaplain status or anything, but she snuck into the hospital, probably snuck, knowing Tracy, she probably snuck. She snuck her way in. Tracy was with him last, prayed with him, read the Bible to him one or two in the morning. So we were in the afternoon before evening service and before the next morning, Doug had passed. That's very formative about who I am. It set me up. It set our church up for how we treat things. It set me up that when I went to Harvard and I was around a lot of folks that were struggling and dealing with what we biblically believe is part of the brokenness. When I walk down the street of Newark and I see a woman who is attractive and perhaps dressed in a way that's showing me more than I want to see, and I want to look, that's brokenness. And that brokenness is no more or less than Doug's circumstances that led to him attracted to the same sex. Truth has to have something that sets it. We believe scripture and the God of scripture sets truth. But then when you stand for truth, that God of truth sees all of us as broken, every single one of us. And he can save every single one of us. And he tested us. So when I went to Harvard and I was around a lot of folks that were in the homosexual lifestyle, I was already primed. I didn't reject them. I was kind. And so part of our ethos at Newark is this, this journey of inclusion, this journey of holding to truth radically. And yet loving everyone without reservation. Whether we're comfortable with it or not, whether we like it or not, whether we know what to say or to do, you must. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples and that you have loved one for another. Doug went with us. I'll tell you, though, I'll end on a little bit of an up note to show you the orneriness of my father. 
So Doug goes in this season, this two, three years that he was with us, he goes with us to a men's retreat. <laughs> so Doug goes to this men's retreat and Dr. Klepper is there. I think it was Dr. Klepper. If it wasn't Dr. Klepper, it was Brother Trapani. It was one of these two. And he's talking about the importance of a father. So he's speaking to men, importance of a father. At the end of it, <laughs> Doug raises his hand. He's innocent. He's in this church that's accepted him, loved him, embraced him, treated him with respect. So he raises his hand, he stands up. He said, brothers, I beg you to listen to this man. And he tells his story. Tells his story of how his father, I don't remember the specifics, but how it played a role and how he was in the homosexual lifestyle and all this kind of thing. So there were a few Christians that needed to grow in their Christianity that were there. In fact, there were a few pastors that needed to grow in their Christianity that were there. So if we go to lunch. My father's sitting with some other pastors, and those pastors begin to talk about who brought this homosexual to the men's retreat. Now, if you want to think, I know my father, particularly as he's gotten older, he looks like a nice, docile old man. Let me tell you what. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I was raised by wolves. They may be old wolves. Their fangs may be a little, little yellow, and they may be a little gray, but those are two wolves. Don't tick them off. My dad sat there for a good 10 minutes and let that conversation go. Now, you got to understand, at the time, my dad was district secretary treasurer. In the structure of a district, that was the second most important position within the district. He let them talk. He let them just go on and on about how horrible it was that somebody was dumb enough to allow a man who was dealing with homosexuality to come to a men's retreat. What was he thinking? How could he blah, 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 blah. And dad just let it go. And then I can just see him. I know it. He's probably cutting into his food. He just says, he's from my church. <laughs> what do you do then? And he didn't say another word. He just said he's from my church and didn't say another word. Boy, you talk about some backpedaling. So let's be honest about it. I know I got my, bla my blabby mouth from my mom. My mom's a blunt speaker and so am I. But my daddy can put it to you a few times too. It's, about, ju it's about justice. It's about all. It's about Jesus with the adulterous woman saying, hey, all of you that want to throw a stone, the one without a sin, throw it first. Mm. And then it's a message of stop sinning. And I don't condemn you. That's the message. And we got tested, Joyce. The, the story of Doug is we got tested. And I believe that everything that has happened since then, God went, okay, you passed that test. You passed that test. Here's some more undesirables. Absolutely. <laughs> And then the Lord sent us a rush <laughs> and we've been working to accept him ever since. I think we're doing okay. A rush. I mean, I'm not says, the person ever, so that's it's all right. I mean, <laughs> the man says amen at all the wrong times. Sweet Jesus. It's now right. Distracting. You're trying to preach a serious message. He says, amen at the wrong point. Meg, I feel your pain. <laughs> 
if you throw a rash under the bus, you have to throw Antoine under the bus. Too. Oh, I know. I, absolutely. Antoine's Antoine is a great Arash buddy. Absolutely. Antoine is phenomenal, man. He's Good. just not quite as loud as Arash. That's the deal. Arash is just a little louder. That's all. But anyway. Well, folks, oh. I hope you've enjoyed our story time here. Yes. So many more. Maybe, maybe we'll have to do a part two or part three. We'll see. I have to, yes. Yeah, let the team. There's more stories. I can tell you that for sure. But I hope you've enjoyed some of the stories. Maybe some of them that you haven't heard. Maybe some you have heard. All right. All right, guys. So don't forget, newarkupc.info if you want to check us out. And um, again, our new series will start tomorrow. Uh, so please stay in tune for that. You're going to, you don't want to miss that. Um, and it'll be at seven. So keep that in mind and thank you for joining us Friday night. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night.